in. Make sure we're on. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat, and as you do, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it up to Mark chapter 10. Uh, we will close out Mark chapter 10 and our sermon series in Mark for the fall. Um, and so I want to encourage you uh, to follow along with us today, but also make sure you're here next week as we begin our series in Advent, where we're going to work through from Genesis to Jesus, uh, rehearsing and remembering the story of redemption. So we'll start in Genesis and we'll get all the way to Jesus' birth in four weeks. And we're not going to cover everything. Uh, we'll take some snapshots along the way. But I do want to encourage you, in these next four weeks of, of preparing for and uh, planning and celebrating Christmas, that you take time every day to slow down uh, to maybe one of the, the different devotional readings, or the, if you're as a family, the Seeing Jesus, or not Seeing Jesus, the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, to remember and rehearse the story of God redeeming people from sin and death by sending His Son, Jesus, because that's what Christmas is all about. So I would encourage you to prepare for that. Uh, we don't fall into rhythms and patterns. We intentionally create rhythms and patterns, and so uh, I would encourage you to, to begin preparing and planning for that. And so uh, as we lean into and we dive into Mark chapter 10 uh, today, uh, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever, have you ever done a, a restoration project? Like maybe a house, uh, maybe a car, uh, maybe it was something smaller, like you had a model of some kind or, or a, a handed down uh, antique, which you're supposed to not restore, uh, but like uh, maybe uh, something that you have taken and you have restored. I I've done uh, more probably things that fall into this category uh, than I can count, uh, restoring kind of projects. And um, it started as a kid by me just wanting to take things apart and not knowing how to put them back together. And so they were just taken apart. Uh, and then as I grew and learned, began to love this idea of taking something uh, that was broken and restoring it to the way that it was supposed to be in its original way. And, and one of the things that I did uh, uh, was a long... We've done this to uh, a house and, and some other different things. Uh, when I was in high school, I bought my dream car. When I was a kid, I remember driving down the road in Springdale, Arkansas, and my dream car pulled up beside me and my family. It was a, uh, a mid-80s Jeep Scrambler. And so you're like, what is a Jeep Scrambler? Well, you go look it up later. Um, and I was like, that's the coolest vehicle known to man. 
And it was like perfectly restored, factory, looked like, like it was just, just made. All the stickers were right. It was black and orange and yellow, and it wasn't lifted because when I was a teenager, I thought lifting them was dangerous and bad. And, uh, and, but I, I had this fascination with that car. And then when I turned 14, uh, my great-grandmother passed away, and she left us great-grandkids some money. And, uh, and I was like, I want, I want a Jeep Scrambler. That's what I want for my car. And so uh, my dad had a friend who had acquired all the parts to build a Jeep Scrambler. Uh, clarification, he bought all the parts. He didn't buy an assembled Jeep Scrambler. It was literally a field. There was, no joke, a goat standing on top of the Jeep when I pulled up in the yard. Um, there were no wheels, no axles on it. The frame was not on, the body was not on the frame. The engine was under a like feed trough bucket and there was two transmissions. I didn't know which one to take, so I took them both. It was just like a pile of parts. And so we piled that whole thing up onto a trailer in Arkansas. We strapped it down with a whole bunch of straps and we drove down the road to my childhood best friend's house. We pulled in his driveway, and I was so pumped. I was so excited. I was like, man, come look at my new car. Come look at my Jeep. I'm so excited. He comes out and is like, what in the world? <laughs> that is not a car. Like, it's literally like you picked up stuff in a junkyard and put it on a trailer. That's what, what it was. And, but I was so excited because I saw the potential of what this could be through a whole lot of work, <laughs> through a whole lot of money, and a whole lot of pain, and frustration, and tears, and blood, and sweat. Uh, and I learned a lot about restoring things along the way. One of those lessons was, uh, this is a, a 1984 vehicle, um, so it had been sitting in a field in pieces for a long time. And a lot of things, when they sit in the open air, in the weather, they acquire something called rust on them over years and years and years of time. And if you're going to restore something, um, we can't take shortcuts. So if I was to uh, just be like, man, let's do this quick. Let's just bolt it together and let's just spray it down and we'll just get on with it. And so if you were to take that 1984 Jeep Scrambler with rust all over it that had goat poop in the back and you just put a layer of paint over the top of it, what would happen? It would still be falling apart. It would still not be functioning right. It would not have been restored. We would have just painted over all the mess and all the rust. And so I learned that this is process that you have to do. You have to take tools, uh, typically some kind of grinders or sandpapers or scrapers or, or different sanding tools, and you have to remove the rust from the, the still good, healthy metal underneath. And it typically shines like silver, and it's nice and pretty. And, and as you get that rust out of, the, out of the way, you can then paint that again, and it will be restored. Because if you don't remove the rust from that, and you paint over it, that rust will continue to grow underneath the paint. And so I had this one spot on the side of my, as best as I could as a high school kid with a very limited budget, restored Jeep. Um, and there was one spot, this beautiful yellow Jeep, it was super awesome. It was like the idol of my teenage years. Not a joke in that moment. It actually was. Like everything was revolved around this thing. And uh, there was a spot on it, this bubble that started to create underneath the paint on the back side, passenger side of the Jeep. And I was in college and I was like, what in the world is that? And I went up to it one day and I like tapped on it and it just cracked open. It just cracked open and the paint chipped and cracked and it, like made like... Uh, like a spider crack, like a bullet hole kind of thing. There's no bullet holes in it. What was that? 
there was a tiny little remnant of rust still underneath the paint that I failed to remove from the Jeep before I re- repainted and restored it. And that little bit of rust, that little bit of decay, that little bit of infection on that metal spread and grew and fractured the paint. And, and it needed to be restored again correctly in that same way. Uh, I love restoration projects. Uh, there are a lot of pain and frustration because I, I love envisioning what this thing could look like. We did our whole house, our other house. We, I love thinking like what this could look like and going on all the websites and picking out all the stuff and doing all these things. I hate finishing it, but I love the idea of the whole process. Um, and, and, and why? Uh, when we think about this idea of restoration, um, it's a hard but beautiful process. It's a difficult but rewarding thing to do. To, to step back and look at something that was a disaster, a mess, unwanted and undesired, and to step back afterwards and look and go, look at what this is now. This is now desired. This is now beautiful. This is now working and functioning as it's intended to do so. It's hard but beautiful work. And, and why does something need restoration? Why does something need to be restored? Why did that Jeep need restoration? Neglect. <laughs> Neglect. And, and in that, there was a whole lot that went wrong. It was broken. It was disassembled. Uh, there was uh, infection underneath. There was decaying happening. There was disorder in the whole situation. And, and when things are broken, when something is wrong, uh, it needs restoration because of brokenness. And, and here's the reality of the world and every single one of us that sit in this room. Every single one of us need restoration. That every single one of us need restoration. Why? Because of sin. Because sin in its destructive way, has broken, distorted, diseased, ultimately killing all things. And this isn't just us. So yes, there is categories of brokenness because of sin. There is brokenness in me that needs to be restored because of the sin that I have committed and done. Like there is sin in each one of us, rebellion against our good God, His will and His way, that comes to the surface and against others and against ourselves and against ultimately God creates brokenness and death and pain and destruction. So sin that I have committed creates brokenness that requires restoration. There's the sin that others commit, sin that others do in our world, and our proximity to other human beings means we will experience the brokenness of sin from others. This is why there's, uh, in some places, you'll see people isolate when they experience extreme levels and kinds of brokenness from other people. They push people away and they don't want people close because they've experienced brokenness and pain because of other people's sin against them. We experience this on a, on a communal level. 
The brokenness that sin uh, creates by others' actions and attitudes and thoughts and, uh, and words causes brokenness in us, too. And then there's the reality of a world that is broken by sin. That the interworkings and fabrics and the way of the world, the natural world, is broken because of sin. We'll look at this more in, in uh, next week as we start in Genesis and are walking through the story of redemption. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and took that fruit and chose um, to be their own God, to do things their way and not His way, uh, they were broken in sin. They hurt and caused brokenness in one another and all of God's creation was broken. We experience this in um, in all kinds of ways, in disease, in sickness, in, uh, in thorns, literally, thorns and thistles, uh, in things like poison ivy, which I don't know if there's ever a redemptive purpose or plan for something so horrendous as poison ivy. I'm sure there's a reason mosquitoes exist, but you know, whatever. Uh, maybe in a non-sinfully broken world, they wouldn't bite us. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, but there is this reality that we live in a world that is fractured by human- humanity's sin and uh, in, in, is in a way that it was not intended. It is distorted. It is filled with death and loss and disorder and disease because of sin. And if sin brings destruction and disorder and loss and disease and death, there is need for restoration. Restoration in us. Restoration in society. Restoration to the created world. And so the point of this morning's sermon, as we look at this passage in Mark chapter 10, this interaction Jesus has with a blind man named Bartimaeus, it's just a Hebrew way of saying son of Timaeus. Uh, when we look at this story, we're going to see that Jesus came to restore what sin is broken. That Jesus came to restore what sin has broken. And in this, we're going to see that Jesus came to, and not only did He come to, uh, but He welcomes us with an invitation to come to Him and find that restoration. That He came to, and He welcomes us to Him to find that restoration. So, interestingly, in this story, little tidbits of it, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, this is a pivotal moment in the whole story. So the Gospel of Mark tells the life of Jesus, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, uh, and, and this is a pivotal moment. This is the last healing miracle that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark. This is also uh, one week before Jesus is crucified and rises from the dead. Uh, that this is the last week of Jesus' life, and the last thing he does that we were told in Mark before he goes to the city of Jerusalem, where he would never, uh, until forever in the future, uh, until he restores all things, come again to Jerusalem, he goes there to bring about restoration in his death, in his in his sacrifice, and in his resurrection. And so uh, this week, as we look at this point, that Jesus came to restore what sin has broken, we're going to see in this story um, the 
instruction for us to come uh, in three different ways. To come to Jesus in desperation, to come to Jesus in eagerness, and to come to Jesus in faith for restoration. That we, we've, we all need restoration because of sin that we've done, that others have done, and the brokenness of the world. And Jesus in this story unveils to us an invitation to come to him for that restoration in desperation, to come to him in eagerness and to come to him in faith. So let's look at this story. Um, let's look at how this unfolds in this interaction with Jesus, starting with that first one. Come in desperation. Verse 46 is this. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So as we see this story unfold, Jesus' last stop before he enters the city of Jerusalem, and he's on a journey, and he's not on an uncommon journey. It's not like Jesus has gone rogue. Jesus is taking a very familiar pathway that is, is filled with a lot of people. We're, we're give, give or take 15 to 18 miles away from the city of Jerusalem uh, in the city of Jericho when this is taking place. There's a massive crowd of people uh, for two reasons. One, because Jesus is very popular, and so Jesus' popularity tends to draw and carry crowds with it, but also because it's historically uh, common for rabbis or teachers to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem for Passover which is what Jesus is currently doing. And crowds of their students and teachers would go with them to Jerusalem for Passover. And so Jesus is going to Jerusalem. We see he's on that journey the last few weeks as we walk through this story. And on that journey, he's doing what rabbis or teachers would do. He's instructing and he's teaching his disciples along the way. And the crowd is interacting and the crowd's there. They stop in Jericho. Uh, most likely they stay the night because they're leaving the city. So it's more likely what's happening here is they come to Jericho and they all stay the night in Jericho. Maybe, I don't, we don't know how long they stay or what they do, but the next morning they rise to make that now 15 to 18 mile walk. Because that's what they did, was they walked 15 to 18 mile from Jericho to the city of Jerusalem. And so, uh, so as they are going along this way, you have Jesus, you have his disciples, and you have this great crowd. Probably some of them are travelers just making their own pilgrimage and their own journey. Uh, it would be very common for the city of Jericho to be filled with uh, descendants of Levi who would have come to the city of Jericho, and they would go on rotation to serve in the temple to make these sacrifices, responsibility to go to the Israel. And so there's probably some of those guys, maybe some of their family, some of their kids. Uh, and then you also have the great crowd of people who are following Jesus. Uh, at this point, we know, uh, we know, we see this play out in just a few weeks on timeline uh, in Acts, that it's not just Jesus and 12 guys, that there's hundreds of people who love and follow Jesus. Most of the ones that are named by name are, are actually women who are following Jesus. And so this crowd is likely filled with both travelers on this pilgrimage and also followers of Jesus and his disciples. And so as they're leaving the city, most likely walking out of the gates of the city of Jericho, uh, the crowd is passing by and there's a beggar, uh, a beggar named Bartimaeus, who's also blind. 
And so, uh, very common setting. This, this beggar is where you would expect to see beggars. This blind man is where you would expect to see blind people. They're sitting outside of the gates so that as people would enter the city or people would leave the city, they could ask them for charity or alms or gifts of some form. And so, uh, there's this massive crowd of religious people going to the city of Jerusalem, uh, and this guy's positioned himself intentionally and strategically uh, in view of this traffic so that he can ask for money, for food, for help. He's a blind man. Um, uh, we don't know much about him other than that he's blind and he's the son of Tima, Timaeus. Uh, likely we're given details about his sonship because this guy uh, most this happens throughout the New Testament, was a part of the early church in Jerusalem. Typically they throw in that like son of so-and-so when it's somebody who people who read this in the first century would have known who Bartimaeus was. It was one of those like, hey, do you guys hear about Bartimaeus, that guy who Jesus healed that became blind, that now he's a part of the church in Jerusalem? And yeah, yeah, that's a pretty cool story. His testimony is pretty epic, pretty awesome, that kind of thing. So they give us little clues, probably in there in some way. Uh, but Bartimaeus is sitting along the side of the road outside of the city and Jesus comes by. And he's close enough to, and probably has that uh, heightened sense of hearing because of the loss of his sight, and he hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth that's coming by. The popularity of Jesus is on its all-time high. There's tons of people, crowds of thousands who are following him around, and so it's Bartimaeus knows the name of Jesus. If not, he wouldn't have responded in this way, um, but he hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth, and he begins to cry out. He begins to literally shout for Jesus. And he calls him something specific. He calls him son of David, which is a significant thing that Jesus is called by Bartimaeus here. Because the, 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 the title, son of David, is a reference to the Messiah king who would come to sit on the throne of David and rule over the kingdom of Israel for all of eternity. And so, it echoes something that Bartimaeus believes about Jesus, that he is the promised king, the son of David, the Messiah. And he cries out for him to have mercy on him. The crowd, probably thinking, why are you inconveniencing this amazing teacher by asking him for money? Be quiet. Be quiet. Stop yelling out for money from Jesus. Assuming that's what he wants, because that's what he's probably asking for them to give him money. But in their rebuke, he gets only louder. Then he only gets louder and cries out more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And we see Bartimaeus come to Jesus in desperation by crying out. And crying out all the more when he finds opposition or challenge, or difficulty. As human beings, there's some, this sense, this aspect of crying out is so intrinsically intertwined into who we are. Uh, and specifically, this act of crying out seen in prayer. I mean, like, how in the world is prayer intertwined in who we are? Uh, I'm reading a book right now, really helpful book, really great book, called uh, Pray Like Monks and Live Like Fools. It's just about prayer. If you want to look it up, it's, it's so far, it's great. Um, and in it, he starts out by looking at this interesting uh, like anthropological study of human beings across cultures that show 
human beings innately pray. That today, this is a quote, I'll read it quickly. Already today, plenty of people have prayed. Catholics have received their poetic prayers of the historic saints. Muslims have spread their rugs and bowed their foreheads to the ground and begun chanting the Quran in unison. Jews have pleaded or have written pleas to Yahweh on small pieces of paper, rolled them up, and wedged them in Jerusalem's wailing wall. Buddhists have meditated meditatively emptied themselves, searching for an enlightened state of self-forgetfulness. Tibetan monks have spun the wheel that holds the wadded-up pages of prayer journals like a game of divine roulette, and somewhere a staunch, convinced atheist in a hospital waiting room has buried his head in his hands and muttered a few words, desperate words, to a God he doesn't even believe it that is there to listen. The Western church is declining in essentially every statistical measure. Still, in a society losing interest, is growing suspicious of the church. Prayer isn't going anywhere. That intertwined in the human being's makeup and existence is this crying out to something more powerful than us. Why? I think it reveals that we are actually desperate and needy. So we'll ask the question and we'll walk through a few things. Uh, what drives a person to crying out for help? What drives someone to the place where they cry out for help? I'll, I'll post two things. One, uh, they realize something about themselves. That they've come to a realization about something in themselves that has led them to cry out for help. Think about it, a, a baby. Why does a baby cry? Why does a child cry out? Why, why do they, when they are hurt, run up to, arms up, lifted, crying to someone else? Because they have a very real understanding, whether they can vocalize it or not, about themselves, that they are weak, that they are incapable, that they lack understanding, that they are hurt, and need comfort, and they can't provide that comfort for themselves. If you think about it in the Bible, uh, this, this reason people cry out for help, that they realize something about themselves, that they are in desperate need, um, is, is what's celebrated as great faith in the Bible. In the story of, of God redeeming mankind by the blood of Jesus, by faith in we see people told throughout this story, and, and great faith is seen in realizing our desperate need and dependence on God. Now, think about it. Uh, Abraham and Isaac, picture of great faith. Abraham and Ishmael, not so great faith. Uh, you got Abraham and Isaac, I promise to give you a son by your wife, Sarah. Ah, it's not really happening. I want it to. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and go and sleep with her, uh, her maid and have my own son my own way. Not great faith and great faith. Or, or to go another step further, Abraham and Isaac, great faith to, to be willing to trust that God would raise him from the dead if he did sacrifice him on the mountain or that he'd provide a sacrifice, which he did. And then you have Sarah and Abraham who go to Egypt. And instead of trusting that God would provide protection for his beautiful wife, Sarah, in the land of Egypt, he says, oh, it's just my sister. It's just my sister. 
taking matters into his own hands, weak in faith and trusting that God's sovereign protection over him and his wife. And what happens to Sarah? She goes into the house of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh finds out it's his sister and gets really angry and is like, get out of here. I don't want your God to like, hurt me, so get out of here. So you have these stories, these moments of one guy who has moments of great faith, where in that great faith, he's acknowledged something about himself. He is fully and completely dependent upon God to do what only God can do, for God to work. And then you have moments of bad, weak, not great faith, when he's taken matters into his own hands to try and do what he thinks needs to be done for himself or others. What's not great faith is self-sufficiency, independence, self-exaltation, hypocrites who act like they don't have problems. That's not great faith. And this is a challenging place that we find ourselves because we live in a world that says individualism is the way to go. Self-reliance is a sign of your growth, your maturity, your strength, your, your grit, your know-how, your individual, be individual, be yourself, be self-reliant, don't ask for help, don't ask dumb questions, don't question, don't wonder, don't try hard things, don't, uh, d- just, just depend on yourself. We need to stop believing that living self-sufficient and as independent people, undependent, uh, not needy, it's a good thing. It's not. It's not celebrated anywhere in the Bible as great faith in God's people to function themselves in a place and posture like they don't need God or His people. We are not designed to be independent. Literally, it says it's not good that man should be alone. We're not designed to be independent. We are, you and I both, are in desperate need of restoration. And here's the problem. You can't provide that restoration for yourself. You can't do the restoring work on your own heart that you and I both need. So what drives a person to crying out for help? One, they realize something about themselves. They're in desperate need. In desperate need of restoration. Two, they realize something about the person that they cried out to. What leads somebody to crying out for help? And the second thing, they realize something about the person that they cried out to for help. Why does that child go up to their mom and dad when they're hurt? Because they realize and they know something about that person. They know that they love them. They've shown and proven their willingness to bend over backwards to help them, to comfort them, to provide for them. In the same form and fashion, when we come to the humble place of realizing we are in desperate need of restoration, something we cannot provide for ourselves, we're broken to the point to where the only thing that remains is faith. It drives us towards somewhere else for help. And that one place it ought to drive us is us realizing that God is our only help and hope in times of need. To remember or to be reminded by others 
that God has shown himself time and time again to be powerful, compassionate, to do a restoring work in those who come humbly, desperate, and needy before him. To realize something about God, something about his character, something about his promises, his power, his compassion, to remember or realize or be reminded that he desires your restoration. Drives or brings us to the point and place of crying out. Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor, said it this way, are you helpless? The answer to that is yes, whether you were to know it or not. Um, are you helpless? Understand that your plea is sweetness to his ears. Are you helpless? Are you broken? Understand that your plea for help to our good God is sweetness to his ears. We don't go to people for help who can't help. When I need emotional care and support, I don't go to my children. Why? Because they don't have the emotional maturity to actually help me. They don't. When we're in financial need, we don't go to the blind Bartimaeus beggar. We go to someone who has proven their faithful love and care and generosity because of the grace of Jesus in them. I can remember times when I did that where I went to my parents in financial need, where Rachel and I have done that in our marriage, where we've gone to our friends or our family when we found ourselves in financial need. Humbled, helpless. When we find ourselves, when we realize that we are helpless and desperate, and we realize something about our God, that He is more generous than any being in all of the universe. We come humbly, helpless, and desperate to Him for whatever it is that we need. Oftentimes, we don't see powerful restoration to what sin has broken in our lives because we aren't desperate enough. We, don't, we aren't desperate enough. We maybe have become complacent. Uh, we need to own the reality that we are broken, helpless, and desperate in need for restoration. We're going to stop lying to ourselves that we can do what we can't do. That we are capable of restoring and fixing ourselves. We've got to stop downplaying our brokenness like it's not that big of a deal. Everybody deals with this. It's not that big of a deal. Oh, it'll fix itself. I say that to myself all the time. It never happens. <laughs> Things don't fix themselves. We've got to stop acting like we're able to restore what's broken in us. And we've got to come in desperation and like Bartimaeus, cry out to our good, gracious God to move and work in power. The first thing we see in this passage is Bartimaeus 
humbled, broken, empty, begging, and desperation, crying out to Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. What he knows about Jesus, what he knows about himself, has led him to cry out. You and I need to come in desperation to Jesus. But not only in desperation, we need to come in eagerness. In eagerness. In Mark chapter 10, verse 49 and 50, it says this about our, our coming in eagerness. It says, And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. That's got to be one of the most frustrating moments in this whole story. Like, if you're Bartimaeus and you're sitting there and you're like, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. And everybody's like, shut up. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, hey, 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 come on, buddy. Hey, come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, come on. Let's go, let's go. That's got to be frustrating to Bartimaeus to be like, you guys were just telling me to be quiet. Now you're acting like you're my friends. <laughs> like, you're not my friends. You aren't being nice to me. Now you're being nice to me because Jesus is nice to me. That's it. That's all we got here. Anyway, sorry. This is a frustrating moment in this story. I can imagine if I put myself in Bartimaeus' shoes. Um, <laughs> So I'll read 49 again. Uh, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprung up and came to Jesus. We see some specific things about Jesus in this passage. Jesus is busy. He's got a lot going on. He's got thousands of people following him, eager to listen to every word that comes off his tongue on this pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. I don't know if Jesus is like me or other people who teach and have like planned or if rabbis in this day were just like off the cuff, amazing at teaching. I don't know. He's God in flesh, so he probably was. But like nonetheless, he, uh, he, he's got a lot going on. And not only that, as he is approaching the city of Jerusalem, he's got a lot emotionally going on. We know this because Jesus, is, it's recorded that he looked out over the city of Jerusalem and he wept because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them. That his heart hurt and suffered with the lost brokenness of God's people in the city of Jerusalem. So there's a lot of emotional weight going on. Jesus knows and has now told his disciples three times, I'm going to die in the city of Jerusalem, in just a few days. So there's a lot going on in Jesus. I don't know about you, when I have my mind set on something, I don't like being interrupted. When I, specifically, if I'm like immersed in a project, maybe I'm building something, or I'm like cleaning the backyard, which I hate doing, or, or I'm like putting Christmas lights on the house, it's coming up this week. If somebody comes up to me and is like, hey, can you come help me with this? And I'm like halfway in the middle of that, I'm like, no. Yeah, I'll help you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you need? Why? Because it's, I know, it, it, for me, it's incredibly hard to restart that motivating drive to get back to doing what I was doing when it's interrupted. And so, I, I, Jesus isn't me. He's way, way, he's perfect. But nonetheless, he's got a lot going on. He's emotionally invested in this journey. He's got a lot of people listening and following him. But in all of that, Jesus hears from the crowd, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And he stops. That Jesus hears the voice of blind, begging Bartimaeus. He hears his cries, and he's stopped in his tracks. 
which echoes to us this reality when we come in desperation and cry out to our God for restoration, He hears and He stops to respond. We prayed this morning, a group of us in, in this room, for this moment. Um, and there's a, a part of the Psalm 66 we were praying that says that He attends to our prayers. This is a moment where Jesus is attending to the crying out of blind Bartimaeus. He hears his cries. He stops and says, bring him here. Bring him here. Bring him here. And they, of course, respond. I told you my commentary or thoughts on their response. Probably frustrating. But there's some other things that we see in verse 50 about how Bartimaeus comes to Jesus. It says in verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprung up and came to Jesus. That Bartimaeus didn't hear the, hey, hey, get up, man, come on, come over here, Jesus wants you, and go, oh, okay, let me, let me put my clothes on, and let me get my stuff in order, and like, I'm brush off my, I can't even see if I'm clean or dirty, but like, let me get my stuff in order, and like, oh, let me roll up my mat that I've been sitting here on, and I'll carry my stuff up to Jesus. No. Bartimaeus launches himself up off the ground, undresses. <laughs> Just clarify there. He throws off his cloak and he beelines, as best as a blind guy can, straight towards Jesus. That Bartimaeus came to Jesus in eagerness. He's desperate and he's hungry and eager to be talking to Jesus. Jesus has welcomed him, and he came quickly. He didn't, like often we do, consider, oh, well, I'm going to talk to Jesus. He's probably the most popular teacher in the day. I need to make sure that I got my words ready. I'm going to look in the mirror and talk. This blind guy, look in the mirror. It's not going to help. Like, like, I'm going to rehearse. What am I going to say if I ever see Jesus? What am I going to say if I ever see Jesus? So I'm going to say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like, he doesn't rehearse. What am I going to say? He doesn't have his qualifications for healing and disclaimers all charted out in bullet form. Jesus, would you heal me? And, and this is why that I think you should. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't become a foolishness or sin. Uh, I, I, I really think that if you healed me from blindness, I'd do some really amazing things for you. Uh, or or uh, I know, I know, I know I'm, I'm old and I'm blind, but like, it's okay, I still have life to live. Can you, can you give me, uh, he doesn't come with his qualifications and disclaimers or his excuses for his brokenness. He doesn't get his stuff together before coming to Jesus in desperation and need. Like, oh man, if I'm going to ask something big from God, I better have all my ducks in a row. Like We think like that. Often. And what we see screaming in the face of that is God saying, come broken, desperate, and eager. In the mess, whatever it may be, dressed or undressed. Oftentimes, 
in our lives, we are most urgent and eager about the things that are most important. We, we carry ourselves with the most urgency and eagerness towards the things that are most important to us. In a life or death situation, you don't drive the speed limit. Right? Maybe I'm that like low on the Enneagram 1, if you know what the Enneagram is. <laughs> it means I think rules are more suggestions. <laughs> we're late to work and we're not like, oh no, I better follow the speed limit. No, why? Because there's consequences if you're late. In life or death situations, we throw people in the car unbuckled and we just book it as fast as we can to that hospital. A few months ago, this is now like in the, let's see, it was in the spring. Maybe it was in the fall. I don't know. One of my boys busted his head open in the pool. And there was not a whole lot of like, let's get the appropriate bandages here and let's like make sure it's dressed correctly. It was grab a towel, put it on the head, hold pressure, and say, get in the car, let's go. Where are we going? I don't know, but you're driving. Why am I driving? Because he's bleeding. Like, like I'm holding his head. Uh, kind of thing. Why? Urgency and eagerness about what's most important. We often don't see restoration to the brokenness in our lives because we don't think it's that important or urgent. We don't respond to our brokenness because of our sin with eagerness and urgency. We've, in ways and times, come to accept the brokenness we feel because of the sin of others or the world around us instead of responding to that brokenness and that need of restoration with eagerness and urgency because it's important and significant. The brokenness you and I feel is important to God, important enough that He would give His Son Jesus as a sacrifice on the cross to bring about that restoration. There was not a thing He wasn't willing to give for your restoration. It was that important to Him, that important to our God. We see Bartimaeus in this story, act in eagerness, come in eagerness to Jesus for restoration because it's important to him. Because the brokenness he feels matters. And the brokenness you feel matters to God. And it ought to matter to us. A matter enough that we would come to him broken desperate and eager for restoration. So do we come to him with eagerness, eagerness, with urgency? There's nothing except for you saying wait. By God's grace and in like this God is omnipresent, which means there's no waiting in line for him. It's not like you go to the doctor and you check in and you stand in line and wait for God to take care of your needs. There's no line. Just come. 
He's ready. He welcomes you. The thing I want us to consider is, do we see our sin and brokenness with the same urgency that would drive us with eagerness to Jesus like we see in Bartimaeus? So in this story we see that we are welcomed by Jesus to come in desperation for restoration and to come in eagerness because our sin is, our brokenness is that important. And the third thing we see is that Bartimaeus comes in faith. In verses 51 and 52 it says this, And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. That Bartimaeus didn't ask Jesus for money like he asked everybody else who walked by. Jesus, he asked Jesus for restoration to what was broken, his sight. And when he comes in faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So Hebrews 11, 1 tells us, the assurance of things hoped for. I have confidence that this can be done. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen is what Hebrews tells us faith is. And so he comes to Jesus in faith, believing that Jesus can do and would do a work of restoration to his sight. Which leads us to ask the question, do you and I believe? When it comes to the brokenness and the restoration that we need, do we believe that he is willing and able to restore you? To fix what is broken? Do we believe that he's willing and able to restore you? This is a matter of faith. Do we believe that He's willing? Do we believe that He desires your restoration? For what's broken in you to be made right, to be restored. Sometimes that's what hangs us up. We think, it's just the way it is. I'm thankful that God is not a just-the-way-it-is kind of person. But He desires your restoration. That He's willing to. You see, Jesus is willingness here. <clears throat> Do we believe that He's able? That no one is more mighty and powerful and capable of restoring what's broken? in you. God is more willing than we'll ever know and more able than we'll ever see. And the glimpse, beautiful glimpse of his willingness and his ability to restore all things is seen in Jesus. That Jesus willingly came, willingly lived without sin, willingly suffered in a broken, sinful world, willingly was betrayed, willingly walked the streets to Jerusalem, willingly was tried as a criminal, cheated out of justice, willingly was crucified and flogged and beaten, willingly was buried, and by the Father's power, 
rose from the dead again. No better picture of restoration than the resurrection of Jesus. And that same restoring power is available to us for eternity, for our salvation by faith in Jesus, and for the brokenness that we feel on a, de- on a daily basis in our lives. So I want to leave us uh, in, in one direction um, for the, the rest of our time together. Uh, we see Bartimaeus come in desperation. We see Bartimaeus come in eagerness, and we see Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus come in faith. He knew something about Jesus, that he was willing and capable. He knew something about himself, that he was broken and desperate and needy, and he knew it was important. Um, so the instruction or call for us then is, when it comes to our sinfulness and the brokenness we feel, come. Come to him. Psalm 51, verses 9 through 12, I'll read this and then we'll close up. This is David staring face to face with his own brokenness after he slept with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, got her pregnant, and then killed Uriah in battle, and then tried to cover it up by being the hero who took this widow into his home, and he's confronted by his dear friend, sage Nathan. Not probably a comfortable conversation, uh, but nonetheless, this is David's after God's own heart response. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't pretty himself up. He says in verse 9, hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That King David, humbled, broken, looking at his sinfulness and brokenness, comes in desperation to God for him to restore his heart, to restore his joy. So how do we currently feel or think about our brokenness and sin? Is it that big of a deal? Is there much urgency or importance around it? Do we come veiled, put together before God? As if we have to say things in a particular way and God will hear our prayers because of their lofty words or creative eloquence? Jesus says that that's not what in, it makes God hear your prayers. The prayers that he hears are humbled, honest, desperate, eager, and filled with faith. So the instruction for us now is to do that. As we look at the brokenness in us, we see Jesus welcomes us to him to be restored. He's shown himself able, willing, and powerful to restore. So we're going to come. Come to him desperate. Come to him eager. And come to him with big faith that he's capable of doing more than we can ever dream or imagine.